Let's turn our Bibles now to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 27. One of the, the themes in our sermon this evening is returning to the Lord as Israel comes back to serve the Lord. And Joel chapter 2 is one of those great passages, uh, a promise that God has for his people if they will return to him. So Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green." The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else, and my people will never again be put to shame. Amen. Well, this evening our sermon comes from 1 Samuel 7, verses 3 to 17. That's 1 Samuel 7, verses 3 to 17. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. 
Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were, were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the day of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There is peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Uh, I've begun reading a book on revivals recently. You may recognize the title, Revivals and Revivalism. It's a book by Ian Murray. And uh, Ian Murray is looking at the history of revivals in America. And what people believed was happening in these revivals. And he makes the distinction between a true revival in the, the biblical sense of the word and revivalism. And he says revival in the biblical sense is when God works through his spirit and many people at the same time to convict them of sin and bring them to repentance and faith. I think it's safe to say that what we see in 1 Samuel 7 is an account of a biblical revival. All of Israel turns back to the Lord in repentance and faith. And their deep repentance and new faith are very clear as we walk through this passage together. But this chapter is much more than an account of God's work to bring his people back. It's also the story of how God continues to bless his people for many, many years. And God chooses to bring his people back and to bless them through the work of one man, through the work of Samuel. That really leads us then to our main point. The main point of this passage is that God restores and blesses his people through his chosen servant. And God restores and blesses his people through his chosen servant. We'll see three points. See that God uses Samuel to lead Israel to repentance, verses 1 through 6, to lead Israel in dependence, in verses 7 to 11, and finally to lead Israel in remembrance in verses 12 to 17. So first, God uses Samuel to lead Israel to repentance. I remember where we were left last week in the beginning of chapter 7. God had returned to his people, but for 20 long years, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 
Israel did not know how to live in God's holy presence. But now Samuel returns to the story to lead the people back to God. From chapters 4 to 7, Samuel has never, ever been mentioned. It's like God's chosen prophet had disappeared. But it, it might actually be better to say that God's chosen prophet had been ignored. Remember that Israel had suffered God's judgment, and they had never turned to Samuel to learn what God wanted them to do. But now God sends Samuel with a message of repentance and blessing, and the people respond. Look at verses 3 to 4. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Notice first the simple fact that God graciously speaks to his people again. God had not given up on his people, even though they had been rebellious, and they had been hopeless. They so far... In the book of 1 Samuel, so far they have shown very little faith. But God shows them grace by sending Samuel to give a message of hope. And God's message to his people is a gracious message. It's a gracious message to turn from serving idols to serve him, the living and true God. Now when Samuel says that to them, It's not new, is it? He's reminding the people of what God requires, to serve God only and to serve God completely. We see those requirements, for instance, in the Ten Commandments, especially in the first two commandments. You shall have no other God before me, and you shall not make idols for yourselves. We also see those requirements in Deuteronomy 6, in that famous verse, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Israel is clearly guilty of breaking those very commandments that God has given them. And they know that they're guilty. In verse 6, we see that they are going to come and confess their sins to God. But Samuel's message in verse 3 is not primarily a message of condemnation. It's a message of grace. If you truly are returning to the Lord, here's how. Put away those foreign gods and direct your heart back to the Lord. In other words, God is welcoming you back. You really, truly can go from serving those false gods to serving God again. But there's even more good news for Israel in Samuel's message because he says, if you return to God, then he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. This is blessing. This is God promising blessing for Israel. He will deliver his people and he will protect them from their enemies. Essentially, what God is doing here is offering Israel to completely restore their covenant relationship with him. He is showing that he is their God by reaching out to them and they will again be his people by returning to him. And he will then abundantly bless them just like he has promised. And Israel hears that message and they repent 
and return. We see that simple summary in verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. But more is actually required. Look at verses 5 to 6. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. What Israel needed to do was to turn away from those gods, turn back to God, to come into his presence, and now to confess their sins publicly. That's why they all come together at Mizpah. It's not clear why they pour out water before the Lord, but it is clear by their their fasting and their confession of sin that they know they're sinners. They know they're sinners, and they're asking God to forgive them. You may think of other times that Israel confessed their sins like this before God. Something that came to mind this week was the time in Ezra and Nehemiah. You can read about it in, Ezra, in Nehemiah 9. As the people, they come, they separate themselves from others, they come to hear God's law, and they confess their sins to him, and they pray for his forgiveness. So Israel is doing something similar again in the time of Samuel. They needed to confess their sin before God. But they needed help to do this. And they needed Samuel's help. Samuel says that he will pray to the Lord for all Israel. Samuel is praying for forgiveness on behalf of the people. In other words, Samuel is serving as a mediator. He is representing the people to God. You can think of another famous example of this action in the Old Testament. You can think of Moses, another one of the great mediators for God's people. Do you remember when Moses prays for the people, especially after their sin with the golden calf? He goes up on Sinai, Mount Sinai, into God's presence, and he prays for forgiveness and that God would once again be with his people. Samuel, Moses, and there's others as well. God often worked through his prophets and chosen servants to pray on behalf of his people. It's the way it's set up in the Old Testament. Israel needed someone to lead them in prayer. They needed Samuel's prayers. But Israel also needed Samuel's judgment. When Israel judged Israel at Mizpah, he was reminding them of God's law, saying, this is the law, these are your sins, and this is how you can serve God in all of your life. That's part of what it means to be a judge. As we look at how Israel responds in putting away these gods and in publicly repenting and following Samuel as he proclaims the word to them, it's hard to to kind of see just how dramatic a change that is happening in Israel. After years of rebelliousness and hopelessness, Israel has returned to God in true repentance and true faith and true obedience. It was an amazing, massive change, but that change was costly. And it's costly because repentance, true repentance, is always costly. Israel had to abandon their idols and that entire pagan lifestyle to commit themselves to God. I think we found the same thing in our own lives, that repentance is costly. Living a life of repentance is costly but it is always rewarding. 
It, it hurts to turn away from sin. It hurts to turn, turn away from what we, we want, what we desire. But as we see in the life of Israel in our own lives, repentance is always rewarding. And Israel's repentance is true repentance because it involves concrete changes. Again, all true godly repentance does as well. It could be a change in your heart. You're doing the right things, but you're doing them from the wrong, for the wrong reasons. But it could also be more noticeable, both a change in your heart that then is reflected in a change in your actions. But in every case of true repentance, there's a very obvious change, but either to you or to others. We are turning from sin to serve God. Israel's change here, their new commitment to God is immediately tested. It's where we see, secondly, that God uses Samuel to lead Israel in dependence in verses 7 to 11. Israel's commitment to God is tested because the Philistines learn that all Israel is gathered at Mizpah and they come up to attack. How are the Israelites going to respond to this threat? Again, we've seen how they've responded to the Philistines in the past. How is, how is this time going to be any different? Well, look at verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Look at Israel's heart here. The people of Israel are admitting that they are helpless and that their only hope lies with God. And they ask Samuel to continually pray to God for them, to cry out to the Lord. This is not a nice little prayer that they're asking Samuel to make. They are asking for a prayer of desperation. And they ask Samuel to pray this way because they know that God alone will be the one who saves them from the Philistines. And Samuel does exactly what Israel needs and asks for. Verse 9, So Samuel took a nursing lamb and he offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. Again, we have Samuel representing Israel to God. He is offering sacrifices on their behalf and he's praying constant, urgent prayers to God for them. We shouldn't be surprised by Samuel's work. He is God's chosen servant. He is leading the people to depend on God. This is exactly why God chose Samuel. This is the job description that he's given them. But I do think it's worth stopping again for a moment to be surprised by Israel. Again, the last time we saw Israel by the Philistines was way back in chapter 4, and we know how that went. We know how they turned away from God, they turned to their own devices, their own plans, and how badly it went. They came up with this prideful, sinful plan to control God, and God judged them accordingly. But now we have a completely different Israel. Israel has changed. Their pride is replaced by humility. Their false confidence in God is now replaced by dependence in God. They have left behind their way of controlling God, their way that they thought God wanted to be worshipped. And now they come and they worship God and they depend on him in the way that he's asked through sacrifice and prayer. And they now confess and they now live what they may once have only said. Our help is in the name of the Lord 
the maker of heaven and earth. And God proves that day that he is their only help. Look at verses 10 to 11. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah, and they pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below, as, as far as below beth Car. The Lord miraculously intervened. He thundered, and Israel was able to win. You know, when, the Phil- when Israel first heard that the Philistines were coming up the mountains, they were fearing a massacre. That's why they were so scared. But the Lord intervened, and not only were the Israelites saved from their enemies, but this was a decisive victory over the Philistines that opened up years and years of peace. Israel's experience here of learning to depend on God's help reminds me of what David learned later. As he's running away from Saul, he can say this in Psalm uh, 18, 1 through 3. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to, pre- to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Those words of David could have been the words of any one of these Israelites on this day at Mizpah. But again, I think as we all know from experience, depending on God during hard times is one thing. God often draws us close to him, but then following him faithfully in ordinary life can be quite another thing. It's easy to start to drift away from him. And Israel has demonstrated this time and time again in their history, that God saves them, and then just a few years later, they're walking away from him again. And that's why God uses Samuel in a third way for Israel. God uses Samuel thirdly to lead Israel in remembrance. We see that at the end of the passage in verses 12 to 17. Samuel has a very important role here to continue to bring the people back to God, to continue to lead them. And the first way he does this is by establishing a monument to God's help. Look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Sheni, called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. You know, this stone probably would have been very hard to miss. And every time someone saw it, they were meant to remember God's help. That's what Ebenezer means, the stone of help. Samuel meant for this stone to remind the people of Israel of God's help at Mizpah, but also to remind them of all of God's help in the past. Look carefully what Samuel says here. He says, till now the Lord has helped us. In other words, God's victory at Mizpah is just his latest act for his people. As Samuel has in mind, For instance, the Exodus, the greatest example of God's help in the entire Old Testament. And Samuel is thinking about the ways that God helped later during the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. And later still, when he delivered his people time and time again during the time of the judges. God has proved again and again his power and love for his people. And Samuel wants Israel to remember 
Now, the very fact that Israel needs to remember means that they are tempted to forget. How many times since Egypt has Israel forgotten their God and went off to serve other gods? So many times. So the stone of Ebenezer was supposed to remind people of what God had done in the past. But Ebenezer was also meant to encourage the Israelites to look forward to God's help in the future. It was a sign for Israel of God's ongoing faithfulness. And God has been and always will be faithful to his people. Think of some of the great promises of a passage like Psalm 103, for example. God's forgiveness, God's help, God's care, God's concern. All of these things are what we and the people of Israel could see going into the future as God is their God, as God is our God. You know, we're no different from the Israelites. We also need to be reminded of God's faithfulness in the past in order for us to trust in God's faithfulness in the future. Do you have an Ebenezer in your life? Do you have a reminder of God's faithfulness to you? It doesn't have to be a physical object, though it can be. But do you have an Ebenezer? Do you take the time to remember God's abundant faithfulness to do to you in your own life, in the life of your family, in the life of your church. If you don't, I'd encourage you to make that a habit. We need to be reminded of God's faithfulness to us and to his people. God actually, though, gives all of us an Ebenezer. He gives us a weekly Ebenezer, a weekly reminder of his faithfulness to us. It's the Sabbath. It's Sunday, and it's especially worship like right now, when we hear and we see and we respond to the gospel Sunday by Sunday. Each week, we are reminded of what God has done for us in choosing us, in creating us, and in saving us. And each week, our faith is strengthened to believe and to serve him. God is abundantly gracious to us, even more than in the time of Israel now. Now in the New Testament, week by week by week, to remind us of his faithfulness. Now as we look at Israel here, they are reminded of God's faithfulness, and they continue to benefit from that faithfulness for many, many years. Verses 13 to 14 describe the peace that God brings his people. The Lord kept the Philistines in check, And the cities that the Philistines had taken were returned, and Israel even had peace with their other enemies, the Amorites. Israel had experienced peace somewhat like this before during the time of Judges. There was 40 years of peace after Gideon, or even 80 years after Ahud had killed Eglon, king of Moab. But the peace that Israel experiences now in the time of Samuel seems different. Seems different. The Lord is actively subduing Israel's enemies, and he is restoring Israel's territory. And part of why Israel's peace is different now is because God's judge is different now. God has appointed Samuel and made him a faithful judge. He's he's better than Gideon. He's better than Samson. He's better than all those men who have gone before him. Uh, You can see his faithfulness in verses 15 to 18. They describe Samuel's yearly travels throughout Israel to teach and apply God's word to his people. Samuel is constantly reminding the people of who their God is and what it means to serve him. His ministry did not end with Ebenezer. 
His ministry continued year after year as he faithfully preached God's word to the people. There seems to be so much hope for Israel in these verses. God has used Samuel in mighty ways to bring Israel back to himself and to help Israel continue to serve him. But things aren't as good as they seem. And we'll see that next week in chapter 8. But think for a moment about the work of Samuel. The way God uses Samuel is extraordinary, isn't it? But Samuel and his work point us forward to Christ and his greater work for us. That's where I want us to end this evening, with Christ. God used Samuel to save, to pray for, and to lead his people. And that's actually what he has done for us in Christ in a deeper and greater way as well. Christ saves his people. Jesus Christ, think about it, is the one who preaches the good news of the gospel. He calls for people to turn and be saved, repent and believe. We've seen that repeatedly in the gospel of Mark. And God in Christ is offering us a way to be reconciled with him, a way to return, a way to truly be his people. Samuel could preach. Samuel could tell the good news to the people, that they could be right with God. Jesus does that same thing. He proclaims that good news, but he goes further because he is the one who can make that good news possible by dying for sinners. Christ is the one who opens the way into God's presence with his own blood. And one of the benefits of salvation is that we are now sons of God. Not only are we his people, We are his family, and that comes through Christ and God's grace in him. Israel's repentance in 1 Samuel 7, your repentance. These are never the grounds for God welcoming us into his presence. They're required, yes, they are necessary, but all of God's people are accepted by him because of the perfect work of Christ that is applied to us. Jesus is so much greater than Samuel in not only preaching about salvation, but providing salvation for sinners. We also see that Jesus is greater than Samuel as he prays for the people. Christ now intercedes for his people. That's what he's doing right now before his Father. He's praying for us. He's praying for our forgiveness. And Jesus prays for our help in time of need. Christ's constant intercession, not just at a time of crisis like Samuel, but actually at every moment in our lives, Christ's constant intercession for us is something to hold on to very tightly in the Christian life. So Jesus saves, Jesus prays, and Jesus leads. We see Jesus is greater than Samuel as he leads his people into blessing. Israel found rest under Samuel. Don't get me wrong. Israel found amazing rest from God under Samuel as he led them year by year and as he continued to lead them back to God. But the rest and the leading are are pictures. Really, they're just pictures of what Christ does for us now as the head of his church, as he feeds us, as he cares for us, and as he defeats all his and our enemies. First Samuel 7 is, is, is such a beautiful passage. 
such a beautiful chapter in so many ways because we see the gracious and powerful work of God as he brings his people back to himself again. And 1 Samuel 7 is beautiful, not just because we see what he's doing here in the time of Samuel, but because we see that this is the work of Christ. Christ is the one who brings his people back then, and Christ is the one who brings us back now and who prays for us and leads us into blessing. We see Christ and his work for us on full display as we look at 1 Samuel 7, and as we see the same work that he's doing in our lives today. So as we close this evening, give thanks for a faithful man like Samuel, but give thanks even more for a faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He saves us, he prays for us, and he leads us into the greatest blessing we will ever know. Amen. Let's pray together now. Lord, we are amazed at the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one who has come to save us. You are the one who has saved us completely. You are the one who is able to save us to the uttermost because you pray for us. You've shed your blood for us. And you are the one who is powerfully leading us. We cannot fall out of your hand. We cannot make wrong turns. Each one of us and all of us as your people will join you in heaven. Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in your salvation in Jesus Christ and that you would change our hearts to love you and to serve you in every single area of our life. We thank you, Lord, that we can even pray this knowing that part of your salvation is making us like Jesus Christ, making us obedient and loving like he is. Pray that you would do this work now for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.